I'm Mary Angela Abeo, and this is Virtual Pride on the Face to Faces podcast. While pride is amazing with all the glitter, libations, and celebrations, the real pride is striving to live our truths and fighting for equality, education, and inclusion whenever and wherever we go, starting right here in our personal spaces with how we celebrate ourselves and take care of our community. I'm hoping that this month we give you content to help remind you that though this year's pride may be quiet in your neighborhood bars, clubs, and sidewalks, there is an incredible community of humans ready to celebrate you. And no matter who you talk to, there will always be someone who can connect to your journey. Though we're physically separate this year, no one can take the connection that our pride gives us to each other. Now, let's lean in and celebrate. Okay, I am so ridiculously honored and I admit I'm super close to tears uh, to have this very talented human here. Alok is here to kick off Pride Month virtual pride for face-to-faces. Alok uses they, them pronouns. They are a seasoned performance artist, TEDx speaker, LGBTQ plus activist, named one of NBC Pride's 50 and Out Magazine's Out 100, author of poetry book, Feminine Public, and the soon to be released this week, Beyond the Gender Binary. They share their knowledge, vulnerabilities, and so much heart daily as a social media influencer. And in the queer queer world, they're considered one of the legendary and iconic humans leading the fight to inform and crush the harmful gender binaries and standards in our world today. Alok, welcome again. And I'm super blown away to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. First of all, what I'd like to do with everybody to start off because we are in this weird space in the world. How are you doing today? How are you doing in all of this? Hmm. I've actually been having a, a kind of rough week. I'm feeling, I'm, I'm doing book promotion right now, which is like non-ending. And <laughs> I don't know if anyone's listening has ever tried to like sell a product, but it's very hard. And I think it, it for me is making me recognize how so often people want to look at me, but very few people actually want to regard my knowledge production. Um, and I think maybe a lot of like women and feminine people listening might understand it's frustrating because it's not that I don't want my aesthetics to be appreciated. It's that I don't want my aesthetics to be separated from my intellect. Like I want my intellect and my aesthetics both to be acknowledged. And I want us to challenge how those things became separated to begin with anyways. Um, so I've just been kind of feeling kind of frustration that it feels like I have to, like be glamorous and beautiful in order to get people to listen to me. And I think in quarantine, I've been allowing myself to just be leisurely and like wear t-shirts and like not put on makeup. And, and it feels sad that I can't be seen as me that being that as well. Right. Well, and not only, I think selling a book and promoting a book is hard in general 
and you're doing it in a fucking quarantine. (laughs) Like that's like on top of everything I can't imagine. And so I was actually talking to my friend Dea that I spoke to you about before we started recording Mm -hmm. about, they they were like, it was so cool. I went to buy their book and I was able to buy one for queer youth too. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that that in, in, in essence should be enough for people. But like you said, people want to connect things to things and they have standards that are, ridiculous and harmful and not helpful. So I'm I hoping. guess one of the, one of, I mean, wow, I'm, I'm the queen of derailing. So I'm so sorry if you had like a, no, this is a conversational <laughs> episode. Don't worry. Like every podcast I just use as like collective group therapy of what I'm going through in that particular moment. So I think that one of that's what, that, I mean, that's what this is so good. I hope it helps. One of the things I've been kind of feeling is when masculine people and especially cis gay men, um, do anything. It's seen as like revolutionary, amazing, cutting edge, groundbreaking. But there's this kind of implicit assumption that women and femmes, and especially those of us who are trans feminine, should always be like hustling so hard for everyone. And so it's never seen as remarkable. So I've been struggling to get press about this really incredible ally campaign where I've partnered up with almost 100 community organizations across the country um, that are working with vulnerable queer and trans youth of color, um, many of whom are undocumented, many of whom are indigenous, many of whom are homeless, and states like Missouri and Mississippi and Alabama and places that often get typically ignored. And every time I've been reaching out to mainstream media, it's just crickets. And so I've been really kind of thinking like, oh my gosh, like this is how a structure of power works. It's not seen as remarkable because news only reports things that are seen as exceptional. It's not seen as remarkable because there's a sort of social assumption that I and people like me should already be doing this. And it's not that it's not that I'm I'm interested in like saying like I'm great or whatever. I just want to get these organizations to be highlighted in a in a way that will allow them to be financially sus- solvent and sustainable through a pandemic, right? Because a lot of our LGBTQ community organizations are really struggling for funding right now. And, and it just, I mean, like- one of the things that happens to me is like. I'm always have a meta commentary on what I'm going through in the moment, and so in my head right now, I'm like taking notes, and I'm like whoa, like these are everyday lessons on worth that um, are that have racial and gender connotations and that are so related to mental health because I think so many people feel and struggle from the sense of feeling disposable and feeling like your labor is what is prioritize but not your personhood or the separation of your labor and your personhood and it just makes me feel vengeful but I'm trying to turn that vengefulness into a love and I'm trying to be honest about that process I think for me I experienced the violation and I experienced the wound and I'm like wow this really hurts and then I think about why it hurts and I sit with that pain and then I think about what I can do with that pain and I think right now I'm just feeling like a deep need especially with pride to be like can we give femmes of color their due because pride was catalyzed by femmes of color and is sustained by femmes of color. And yet because of regimes of desirability and worth, we're so often 
disqualified or I guess rejected all the while our work and our labor is constitutional to it. And so Mm -hmm. that sense of like being, of being kind of, um, of holding up the world in your hands, but having the world look at you and say, fuck off. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is misogyny for me. It's us hating the, the women and the femmes who raise us because it's so convenient. Patriarchy makes it so convenient Right. to to say it's your fault yeah, no. <laughs> no it's not actually because if you think about it i mean it all trickles down like you said we've got um you know i think uh, somebody like india Moore, like somebody that you want they want to be pra- you know people praise them on pose and on these shows and it's like oh wasn't she fabulous wasn't that amazing but the moment that there's a dress with the faces of the trans women of color, nobody wants to speak on it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to dig deeper and it's disgusting. And it shows exactly what you were speaking of, but that also trickles down because these orgs that you're helping is, are getting books to trans youth of color that are in danger right now. Our suicide rate is up 300% in the pandemic and over 50% of those are youth. Right. And I can't even tell you how many of those, just based on the calls, the emails, and the applications to my project that I get, 75% right. of those are from the queer and trans community. Right. So, and, and it's um, important to name when we're talking about this as well, that a lot of times these statistics are reported by families who don't acknowledge people's identities. So oftentimes this data is under, underreported, underrepresented, and also a lot of times these kids are not out publicly. And so I, I think that especially when we're talking about statistics around domestic violence and around suicide, we always have to we always have to say like, okay, these are helpful, but helpful for whom? Because right. if we fundamentally say that like trans youth matter, we shouldn't need like extreme statistics to be like there's a mental health crisis. Right. So I always think about the quantification of pain and what interest that serves because so often the very criteria we have to describe our pain, already is another form of pain. And I think that that's especially the case when it comes to anti-trans violence, because a lot of the, a lot of the violence we're experiencing is intimate partner violence or familial violence. And that often is never reported for many reasons. Um, And I think that one of the things that I'm really trying to, and I see this in your project, and that's why I really wanted to have this conversation with you as well, is to move away from an, an emphasis on numbers and to actually move to stories Because I think that in this moment of pandemic, I'm seeing the quantification of human life. Like we see a president that says, we'll do a good job if 200,000 people die. And I'm like, how could you ever say that? Like, how could you reduce people to 200,000 when these are 200,000 stories and networks and families and communities? Like, and that's where I think storytelling is an anecdote to the ways in which this world quantifies us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not only that, but it's amazing the courage and, uh, sense of community someone sharing their story gives someone else because mm-hmm. we all connect with each other at our deepest pain and so if if you share something that someone else that is sad or depressed or is struggling and is not down the journey of their gender the way you are their gender discovery um you give them courage and so i think that uh, like you said you didn't you didn't like i said you didn't derail it's just it all <laughs> trickles down truthfully yeah. Um, I want to know what, you know, this book is, you've done so much work. You've spoke on so many platforms um, from TEDx to gender conferences, everything. This book is 
so pivotal because there's really nothing like it right now. What was your vision? What is your hope? And who, if it could get into the hands of anyone, who would you want to read it? First of all, I want it in the hands of everyone. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think there's a presumed audience because I think everyone needs it. Um, I, I was very strategic and intentional about this book because the majority of gender theory that exists out there is very inaccessible and is published in academic presses that often don't reach the people that it's writing about. And there's a dynamic where especially trans and gender nonconforming young people are theorized, but are not seen as subjects of their own knowledge. And so I wanted this to be in Penguin Teen because I wanted it to be in books in um, libraries at schools. I wanted it to be in curriculum and scholastic book fairs. I wanted it to reach parents and families right now because I think that there, my belief is that there's so many families that could be supporting. They just don't have any of the vocabulary and they don't have any of the education around it. And so what I really sought to do in this book was two parts. The first is give a little brief story about my life and my process. But then the second is to actually give people arguments that they could use to respond to anti-trans discrimination. So in 2020, there's been over 23 states that have introduced anti-trans legislation. And these are often targeting trans and gender nonconforming young people. And in Idaho, actually, two bills were passed during the pandemic. And so what I did in this book is I studied each one of these legislations for the past few years. This has been happening since about 2015. And I looked at what arguments they're using to justify dehumanization and erasure of vulnerable people. And then I provided arguments and rebuttals to each one of those arguments. Because I think that there's so many people who want to support us, but just don't know what to say if someone says, well, you're not a biological woman. And you see these kind of rhetoric circulate without anyone actually having access to what, what, how to respond to it. And I think that that's, that's a calculation. It's a calculation that people have rudimentary wrong and regressive understanding of biology and don't have a critique of who's creating this biology. What do we mean when we say biological? You know, there's so many things. And so in this book, I tried, it was one of the hardest things I've written because I had to go through editing like 20 times to make it down to its most accessible parts. And me, like I usually write like the longest captions, the most like here's like a million citations a million books and i had to be like no 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 i really try to get at the base minimum but to give a kind of 101 that isn't just these are our identities but also these are our politics because i think that 101 often is just descriptive it's saying non-binary equals but there's no there's no critique there of why we were even allocated into the binary to begin with right and how deep that goes and how far back it goes and why it's pushed to this day, you know, there's so, yeah, that's a fucking book in itself, but mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure you could write beautifully. <laughs> um, so you are, if I checked correctly last night, almost halfway to your goal mm -hmm. of 5,000. halfway, which I'm really excited about. Yes. yes. Um, mm -hmm. How can people donate, purchase all of the things? Um, so they're all available in my online store right now. And that's just alokvmenon.com. And you can purchase a copy for yourself or a copy that will go directly to a young person. Perfect. Perfect. And you're trying to reach that goal by? June 9th. 
Um, And I I think we're going to do it because I'm pushing so hard and I have some really fun surprises in the next few days. So we'll see. I love that. I love that. So can you tell me, like, what would you say? I have a lot of, I would say uh, 60% of my applications for my project are trans humans that are wanting to tell their story. However, less than half of them actually make it in front of my camera because they're scared, because they're frightened, because they aren't ready to share. They're worried about what their community or their family will say. And I'm working on a way to create a safe space for them that might not publish their photos just so it's a space to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had, you know, you're, you're seen as an icon to so many and, and a guide. If you had a piece of advice to give someone that struggled not only with mental illness and mental health issues, but also going into such a binary world where they don't feel accepted or seen, um, what would you tell them to help them keep going? It's something that I tell myself too. I think a lot of people, a lot of people think that I have overcome those demons, but I think that when you work in the mental health space, you begin to learn that all binaries are false, including the binary of like good, bad, but also was struggling with depression and I'm now out of it. <laughs> like it's like actually many of us have to deal with depression and anxiety as daily realities that we navigate. And I think that especially when you're a gender nonconforming person, the world can feel so impossible because you have to understand at a fundamental and kind of cellular level that people do not want you to exist. And that's a very difficult burden um, to, to face at every moment of your life, to be like, there's constantly reminders institutionally that I, I'm not supposed to be here. But what I do when I'm feeling impossible, because I believe impossible is a feeling, yeah. is I remember that I'm part of an ancestral legacy. And that's why learning history has been one of the most important things to me. And I read history so much. I actually just have a book right next to me called Work, A Queer History of Modeling. And I'm reading this book just crying, learning about all of these queer and trans artists who are actually responsible for all of contemporary beauty. The first photographer hired by Vogue and Condé Nast was a queer photographer who set the standard for glamour for Mm. cis women, straight beauty for the next like 100 years. And you learn those kind of anecdotes and you learn those names of those people. And then you begin to realize there's queerness all around me. There's queerness and the ways that people are getting dressed and the ways that they're putting on makeup and the ways that they're speaking, how they're speaking. There's queerness and how they're dancing. And you begin to hear your queer ancestors and see your queer ancestors everywhere and recognize that the power of queerness is it's actually its immortality. And I've always thought of that as the paradox is that heteronormativity thinks like reproductive like capacity is the only way to have a future. Whereas queer people understand my art, my legacy, my uh, poetry, my portraiture, my podcast. I'm leaving legacy so that people will see my children and know that I lived. And, and I think that queer people have been leaving legacy for thousands of years. And so when I learn, and I've been digging and digging and digging to learn about gender nonconforming people throughout history, I'm like, they dealt with the same fears and the same anxieties and the same hesitations and the same pain. And yet they found a way to leave a record or a trace of themselves such that I 
could understand that I'm not alone. Right. And so I think that being queer for me requires a different sense of community because maybe we won't be able to assemble in person because it's unsafe right now if you're a young person or in the pandemic more generally. But there's so many ways that we've been assembling outside of person for a very long time. Yeah, I, th I was going to ask you how this has affected your work, how this has affected your life, because I think all of us are finding these silver linings in all of this of, oh, I never thought I could morph my work this way or alternate, alternate what I do. But I think we're learning that we can do a lot with a lot less. Yeah. To it's, take care of it's significantly other. affected my life because um, I'm a performer and public speaker. So it's like <laughs> live, live performance is just not going to be happening for a while. So I had all of my gigs canceled for like a year. And then I had all this free time and I was freaking out and I was like, what am I going to do? And then I realized, oh, wait, this is the universe inviting me to return to my writing practice because the different parts of my brain are like, like I need instant gratification, validation, and that's performance. You see people in front of you that are like, you're amazing. And you're like, yeah. But when you're writing, it's just an audience of one. And you're like, who am I? Like, this is terrifying. Nothing I'm making is beautiful at and I needed that. And so I've been writing and reconnecting. And I think reading and writing for me are some of the most exhilarating and the most painful experiences because I'm constantly finding out things about myself that I didn't know. And so I've been, I've been writing and reading a lot. And I feel like that, that for me is what I need to be doing right now because I'm, I'm preparing, I'm working on preparing my next book project. And mm -hmm. I think this next book project is going to be the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. I really want to capture the psychology of existing in this body in a way that the world understands. Because I think we were speaking a little bit earlier about my concern around statistics. I think that the ways that we make our pain legible is by having to actually use the mechanisms that cause the pain to begin with. And there's a kind of grief to that. And mm. so I want to actually, I want to actually, and this is my problem with empathy often, is that empathy requires a kind of identification, like, oh, I see myself in you. And it's like, actually, no, you'll never understand what I went through. And I think this is something that me struggling with my mental health and, and working with so many people struggling with their mental health, this is one of the first things you have to understand do not say, I understand what you're going through. That's just so presumptuous. You will never understand. In fact, you should honor, I can never understand what you're going through. And I can only imagine um, the way that you are experiencing struggling and strife and pain right now is so particular and unique to you. And you should not have to like make it legible by like erasing some part of it to make it palatable. And so what I'm trying to do in my writing now is like, how do I express my pain on my own terms? How do I express my existence on my own terms without a reference point, without saying it's kind of like, or it's almost because in those kind of likes, you're having to disappear yourself. And I think the purpose of literature for me is literature is where I can be deeply selfish, by which I mean, literature is where I can have a self. It's, it's where so many of us who are denied bodily autonomy are for the first time able to be taken seriously as a mind because people aren't looking at us. And so I want to actually really write something that I think is going to just 
gut me. <laughs> and what better to do it when like I, I, I like have all this time and like I'm just at home. And so I think I'm deeply anticipatory that these next few months for me are going to be really incredible um, and all extreme and all the extremities of it. Yeah, I think you hit something. I think that's really important. I think this pandemic's forced us all to go in side a little bit more. And I started writing my memoir the first day mm. of the pandemic. And my therapist was like, you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? And whew, there's something, you know, I talk about things in therapy that have, you know, sexual assault, my gender, my, my sexuality all over. But when you make it, you have to make it literary. When you write down those feelings and like you said, make it palatable. It's a whole new thing. I've, I've written things down and then gone, did I feel, I feel that. Right. I right. didn't realize that. And it's just, just like they say, writers should pick up a book and read. It's just part of that is just putting it down and realizing I didn't see that side of it. So I love that you're doing that. I love that there's a new book planned. Um, I'm already excited about it. Is that weird? I don't even know exactly what the title I mean, is. <laughs> who knows how long this is going to take me because I've been putting this one off for like five years. And, and, but what I'm trying to be really patient with myself is be like procrastination is a trauma. It's a trauma strategy. Like I wasn't ready. And I just really, maybe that's a message I really want to communicate to people. I think a lot of times people message me and they say like, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not as far along as you, or like, I don't love myself as much as you. And they try to act like this is some sort of like race or trajectory. And it's just so not, you know, where you're at in your life. What I'm asking is that you don't police other people because of where you're at in your life, but you're allowed to have to do what you need to do to survive. There's no, I'm not saying this is what you should do in order to be real. And I think for me, I was not ready in the past five years to write about the things that I'm about to write about now, because oftentimes writing resurfaces stuff. And if you don't have a care plan or if you don't have support networks, you can't go through that. And so I, I, I find that I get really frustrated at how so much of the medical establishment pathologizes people for disassociating or for compartmentalizing. And I'm like, yes. those are survival strategies that people had to do when they didn't have access to anything. Yep. I'm not going to yep. shame them. But I think for the majority of my life, I was disassociated. And I compartmentalized myself to give people what they needed, like smart, articulate, present, there, successful, but I wasn't fully there. And now as I'm actually coming fully into myself and it's taken me a long time. And I, I imagine you were saying in the beginning, it's taken you a long time too. I'm now able to be honest in a way that I couldn't be honest before. I'm able to call my own bluff. Re yes. Call your, I think that's great. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, and policing people, I think that can serve on both sides of the spectrum. I think even in our own queer community, we have people policing each other around their journeys. Mm -hmm. And it's so harmful. And then the society itself is just a fucking dumpster fire. And so there's mm -hmm. so much that we have coming at us from both ways. And I didn't feel ready. I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm the Sophia Coppola of my family. Like, I definitely was that first kid that was like, wear a dress, wear makeup. That's how you are valid. That is how you are a girl. That is who you are. And I was never let to stray. And now at 45, you know, the last few years, I'm like, courage. And one quote that you said several years ago that has stuck with me when you said, I am so fabulous that my body found a way to accessorize itself because there are so many 
parts of my body that I was taught to hate for so long. And now in this journey, I'm like, that is my accessory. Like that is me. And um, we're not taught to feel that way. And that journey takes, we have to feel it here before we can really take that journey. So um, Mm -hmm. I love that you put that message out there to people because I think everyone is pressured to fit in a box in the queer community or to fit under some title or name or, you know, something. And it's, um, it's really disheartening and hard to watch people struggle and, and be compartmentalized. It's also boring and unambitious. Like yes. as queers, we, we are gifted. What a, what a luxury it is to have things suspended. Such, I think, okay, let me explain. For the majority of my life, I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to get married. Oh my God, I'm never going to have a stable family. Oh my God, I'm never going to have anyone love me. Because heteronormativity made me feel like I was a failure. But then I learned that actually failing heteronormativity and failing gender is a huge triumph because then you get to write your own life rather than default into these social systems that are not making people happy or not actually giving people stability. And so I've actually learned how to write and author my own life. What do I like? What kind of friends do I want to have? What kind of communities do I want to be a part of? And to constantly ask myself, is this what I want? No. Okay. I'm going to move in this direction. Right. And so for me, when I see queer culture, just recreating straight gatekeeping, I'm just like, Oh gosh, like this is a waste of our time. Like one of the biggest joys was that we got to break up with gender norms. And then now to see gender norms recreated, even in the trans space, I'm like, I cannot like, that is just too much for me. And I think for a long time, I was just like, where is this coming from? And then I realized, oh, wait, trauma, this is how it works. Trauma recruits us into being its agents. And then we feel it's kind of like stranger things that that like <laughs> that thing just, yeah. just crawled inside of us. And we've just become it now. And people <laughs> we're just walking around and they don't even realize that they're actually just that thing. And I I'm love like, that you just made it out of you. <laughs> yeah, that makes that made my day. I love that. But it's so real because we're all falling into these these horrible cycles and we think that we're being avant-garde and different and new and in reality, uh, we're just falling back into that space, like you said. Well, to end this, uh, I would I could talk to you for hours, but I would drive you insane. Um, <laughs> to end this, I would love to be able to ask you my lightning round questions, which I created for kind of like to honor back uh, James Lipton and his uh, interview tactics. I'm ready, wanna... but I'll just I'm going to let you know I'm awful at these and I fail at them, which means I succeed at them and I take a long time to answer. (laughs) Okay, perfect. They're easy. They're not bad at all. Uh, First of all, I want to know your favorite swear word. Fuck, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's like 90%. Is there like a phrase? Is there like a fuck this or like fuck it? I'm in, I'm like polyamorous when it comes to all the fucks. Same, same, same. Cool, cool. Um, well, you already shared a book with us. Is there some music that you're listening to right now that's like on a day where you're super anxious, having a horrible day that you're like, I need to turn this on? I've been loving the new Perfume Genius album. Right. It's so good. It's so, so good. good. Um, okay. Name two to three influential people who have inspired you to be who you are today who are not, and I'm sure this will not be a problem, white, straight, cis men. Yeah, definitely not a problem. <laughs> um, earlier this year, I began I began this year reading every essay James Baldwin ever wrote. Um, and it was just so life-changing for me. 
Like I just love, I love that person so much and I feel so happy reading James Baldwin. So definitely James Baldwin. Um, secondly, my grandfather just passed away in February and we were very close and his mm. name was Krishnavath and he was a novelist and a playwright. And I think in so many ways he is how I exist. Um, he gave me permission to be a creative person. So definitely him. And then I keep on learning new things about good old Sylvia Rivera over and over and over again. Um, and I just am so grateful for the template that she gave so many of us. So definitely Sylvia Rivera. Yeah. You did that so fast. So much faster <laughs> than the average person. Okay, <laughs> okay, cool. okay. The last question is if you could have lunch with your younger self, what age would you be? What would you tell them? And more importantly, what would you take them out to eat? What would you guys eat? Hmm. I don't remember a lot of my younger self. So it's hard to like be like when I'm eight or when I'm 10. So I'm just going to have like my prototypical younger self. Okay. And I think I would take them out for Indian food because I was so self-hating at the time. I forbade my parents from cooking me Indian food and I ate pasta like every meal, which is just so embarrassing. I missed out on so much. (laughs) And now I'm like, what was I thinking? So I would... (laughs) Definitely, we would go out for some nice South Indian food. And I think I would ask them for fashion advice because I was so cool as a kid. Really? <laughs> then I had that a sartorial so sense. shocking to me. I had such a sartorial sense when I was younger. I was just giving you like Velcro sandals and like knee high socks and like short shorts and like. Yeah, I was just really, I was really into it because fashion was how I could describe myself outside of gender and race. And so fashion for me has always been a second skin that felt more real than the skin that I was born with. So I would, I would just ask them what it's like to dress without concern about what other people will think, because I think I had a moment in my life where I genuinely did not care about what other people thought. And that soon got punished out of me. That's That was unexpected, but also lovely. I love it. Well, I want to thank you again for being here. Um, my gender journey just started, and I was very frightened and very scared, and um, but always felt this masculine side of me that I didn't know where it came from. And um, I was so in, I've been so educated and informed by every single live and everything that you do. Um, and um, I'm just super honored to meet you. So thanks for being here. Thanks Tell so much people for again. It. Tell everybody again one more time where they can where they can find the book, how they can support. Sure. You can get Beyond the Gender Binary on our website, www.alokvmenon.com. And you can also donate a copy to a young person in need. Perfect. Thanks again for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this conversation as part of our Face to Faces series. We hope you'll join and support the Faces of Fortitude community on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude, on Facebook at Faces of Fortitude Portraits, and on Twitter as myself, Mary Angela Abeo. If you'd like to become a face in the project or join me in conversation on the podcast, or maybe you have an idea for a topic we should explore or a person we should interview, please contact us at booking 
at facesoffortitude.com. And until next time, please have extra patience and kindness for yourself and others.